you know, um, we've been away for a few days this week. Um, we went to, uh, well, sort of conference teaching sessions at the uh, Bible school that I went to. And we had a fantastic time. But what it did is it really, all over again, convinced me of the power of the gospel. And by that, I mean the gospel of the finished work of the cross, that Christ won a total victory, and that, that he provides to us as a free gift, salvation in all its fullness, not just forgiveness of sins, but healing, deliverance, being made whole, being set free, released from oppression, all, all the full package, and we receive that by faith. And the other thing it brought home to me is how little that is taught. And yet, this is the, what Paul says is, this is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. It contains the power within itself to change lives. It contains the power within itself to put things right. It contains the power within itself to provide total salvation. And, and I got all excited all over again about the simplicity of that. You know, we, we can confuse everything. We, we like, one thing that, that we're good at is we like to talk. And by talking, often we add other things in. We plant other seeds alongside the simplicity of grace and faith. And then we're surprised because the garden, when it grows, doesn't come up in our lives like we wanted it to, like we expected it to, like we thought we'd been promised. And it's because we're planting all sorts of things into that simple framework. Some things are good and grow and thrive, but other things, they contradict that framework. And so we end up with, with, with a complete mixture in our lives. And that's so easy now when there's so much that is there on the media, so much that there is in, available in publications and on the internet and all the rest of it. And we, and we listen to all sorts of things and inadvertently we end up planting things into the simplicity of the gospel that don't match it. And so that's why we're doing this series on Romans. And from this week it really starts to get interesting. Because from this week, we're going to have some major shifts in the way we think in, in, and in the way we uh, receive the power of God and the flow of the life of Christ in us, the flow of the life of Christ into our lives and through us into the life of others. And I want to start at a really simple place because... When I used to uh, talk to my mum and dad, when, well, when I first got saved and all the years afterwards, um, we would talk, I, I would find ways of talking to them about Jesus, what he'd done in my life, giving testimony to that. And at some point, I would always get the same comment. But we're a good person. We're good people. You know, I, I believe that God is, is good and he's just, and we're good people so that when we get there, I'll be okay. I, I, you know, there's, there's those people and those people and they're bad people, but I'm a good person. And, you know, my first response to that was, well, actually, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Because if there is a, a, a line whereby we're good enough, and some people are the right side of that line and they get in, 
and some people are the other side of that line and they don't know where it is. We need to know where that line is, don't we? That would be a pretty crucial thing to know, wouldn't it? So let's just have, a, let's have an opinion poll. I want you to pretend you're God for a moment. Okay? So you're going to um, decide whether these people are good enough to get into heaven. Okay? Mother Teresa, let's start with an easy one. Is she going to heaven? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, we, we generally agree. Roger's been annoying. <laughs> You know, the one-week wolves beat somebody, he becomes annoying. Okay, let's, let's, let's go to another extreme. What do we reckon, do you, think, do you think most people would let Hitler in? No, no, he's bad, isn't he? He's over there somewhere. Okay, what about, what about Stalin? Does he get in? No, no, no. Um, what about Martin Luther King? Yeah, yeah. Maldela, Nelson Mandela? Yeah, so... We've got an idea what we think is good. But where's the line? What about, do I get in? Because that's the only question I'm interested in. Do I get in? No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you see, if there's a standard of goodness, I need to know what it is because I need to come the right side of the line. And, like, let's assume that I get to the age of 90 and I'm one sin, the right side of the line. I'm not going to do that last sin, am I? You know, I want to know that that one sin is going to take me over the line and then I'm going to be too bad. So, how does my mum's idea work in practice? Let's, let's turn, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning. And what we've already seen, and the reason it starts to get exciting now, is that, that God's been working on this... Um, this train of thought through Paul to show that everybody actually knows there's a God, that they need to carry the consequence of their own sin, and that they're suppressing that truth. And we found out that God's given us an internal witness, an intuitive witness to the truth, and he's given us external evidence in the beauty of his creation. And, and we've got to this point where, where God is saying, Everybody is without excuse. You need to face up to the fact you need to do something about God. And you know it inside. You know, you might deny it because you don't want to address that elephant in the room that I talked about last week. But you know inside, you need to face up to this question about God. And so he starts in Romans chapter 2. Therefore, you are without excuse. Every man of you who passes judgment... For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Paul's actually talking here to uh, the Jews, who, some Jewish people who were living in Rome. And, and basically what he's saying is, is, you guys, because you think you're Jews, because you think that you've got the law, you think you're better than everybody else. But in actual fact, you still do the same things as they do. So you can't hide behind the fact that you're a Jew. You still have to uh, follow through on that. And the way that that needs to come through is in the way you live your life, in terms of what you do and the way you think. And what he's saying here is, and, and he's identifying a problem that we all have, and my mum identified, which is this, comparison. 
because we can think we're better than others. We can think we've got something that somebody else doesn't have. We've got it nailed. We're, we're more holy. We pray more. We read our Bible more. We know more about the Bible. We go to church more. We give more. And we, we can come up with all sorts of things that make us, uh, help us to almost um, avoid the situation and, and be comfortable in the fact we're okay. And what, what the truth is, however, is that comparison is a killer. Because comparison has a negative side. What if you don't think you're okay? What if other people are telling you you're not okay? What if other people are telling you you're not good enough? What if other people comparing themselves to you are saying, you, 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 you're hopeless, you'll never make anything of yourself, you'll never do anything with your life. And, and this comparison that is ingrained into our culture and into our world is actually a killer. And the reason it's a killer is this, and it's really subtle. It's really subtle how the enemy works. Because it removes all our excuses. Because once we play the comparison game, we have to accept there's a standard we're comparing to. And we have to start making judgments on behaviours. And the way we do that is we cheat. Because we then get the idea that we, there's a line which we're going to fall one side of and somebody else doesn't, and we're going to fall the side that's good enough. And the really exciting thing we do is we all tailor that line to ourselves. Once we play the comparison game, we start tailoring the line of good enough to ourselves. And, of course, we will always fall the right side of our own line. And so everybody in this congregation playing that game has a different line, put in a different place on a different set of behaviours. But we've all acknowledged it's a game we're playing. And so it becomes a killer because it gives us a false sense of security. And it produces one of two things. It produces a group of people who look down on other people. Let's call them religious people. Or self-focused people, self-centered people, arrogant people. But let's call them religious for the moment. And they look down on other people. They never tell you they're looking down on you. They use all the right words, but you can tell. They make you feel bad just being in their presence. They make you feel tired, you know. <laughs> You, you, you never quite meet their standard. So that's one behaviour it produces. The other behaviour it produces is just as, as, just as deadly, is it makes you feel like you're the one being looked down on all the time, that you'll never be good enough, that you're rubbish, that you mess up everything, and, you know, why, why could you ever do anything in your life? Why could you never see anything good in your life? And it produces one of those two things. So... Is there a line? That's the question. How good is good enough? Well, yes, there is a line. There they are. That surprises you, doesn't it? There's a line of good enough. If you're one side of the line, you're in. If you're the other side of the line, you're out. See what the line is. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's a line. Every single person falls the wrong side of the line because the standard's perfection. 
The standard is the glory of God. There is a line, but nobody gets anywhere near it. It's not that there's no line. It's that we can't get there. Absolutely nobody. So that gives God a problem, doesn't it? So how did, how did God deal with it? Well, let's just have a, another way of rephrasing that line. Instead of saying, it's the glory of God, let's make it something a bit more translatable. The line, the standard that we have is Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin, he never did anything wrong. He hits the line. He, he, that's what we're looking at, the standard of Jesus. That's what we have to aspire to. And what Paul is saying here is, none of you, in your own abilities and your own efforts, in your own resources, can ever get anywhere near that line. You might think you're better than somebody else, but it's irrelevant. You're playing the wrong game. All you're doing is giving yourself comfort when you're a million miles away. Because you can never get anywhere near it. And that's the whole point of what he's trying to get at. Nobody gets salvation themselves. It needs to come from somewhere else. So where do we go from here? Well, what, God's, what Paul's going to do um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is he's going to say something that in the context of all that shocks. Because you remember, he just told people that everybody's without excuse, that they, they all haven't faced up to the fact that they fall short of God's standard. Everybody's a sinner. You can't get anywhere near God. He's holy and he's going to judge. So what does Paul do? What does the Holy Spirit do? I'll tell you what he does in a minute, but what, I'll tell you firstly what he doesn't do. He doesn't turn around and try and tell you how bad you are. Because you know how bad you are. He's already told you that, and we talked about that last week. You know how bad you are. You know what your issues are in your life. It doesn't do any good to reconfirm those. But the way we've done church and the way we've done religion for a long time, and I'm not just talking about Christianity in terms of religion, but the way we do Christianity and religion for a long time is we, we have this idea that, that if we beat people up and we tell them how bad they are and tell them how much they're falling short and tell them how terrible this area of their life is and how they're messed up in that area, how they're messed up in that area, and that God's wrath's going to fall on them, then will get them into a position that they are so ashamed of themselves that they, at some point in time they'll run to the front of a church or fall over and burst into tears or break down and something will happen that will cause them to be so afraid of, of God that they'll change their ways. And that's the way we've approached it. However, it's not the way God approaches it. And that really surprises people. What does God say in the light of everything he's, that I've just explained? Do you suppose this, old man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you escape the judgment of God? No, because you can't hit the line. Verse 4. Do you think lightly for the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that it is the kindness or the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. 
that is absolutely radical. Because God, what he's saying is this, the way I'm going to address the fact that you can't ever come up to my standard, I'm going to show you how good I am. Instead of showing you how bad you are. You see, the reason the gospel is nearly too good to be true news is it's about God doing things from beginning to end from his goodness, not because we deserved it. It's about him showing us how good he is. Okay, are you still with me? Because that, that's, that's, that's a big shock when people get that idea that, that actually it's God's goodness that causes repentance. Because we don't have that ingrained in the way we do things. Now, one or two of you who are like Bible scholars have already got a verse in your head, which is 2 Corinthians 7.10, and I'm going to come on to that later and tell, explain it to you. However, the point here is this. That the essential nature of God is goodness. We've got these words here. Goodness, forbearance, patience, kindness. That word translated goodness is, is not just a, a little phrase. What it actually means is that that is his disposition. He's disposed to be good. In other words... God is supposed, and, and I know we use this word differently a little bit, but he's, he's disposed, uh, predisposed to be benign. Benign means his, his lead thing is his desire is to bless us. His desire is to see good things for us. And that, that's what that word goodness there means. Now, the, it's actually a funny sort of word because it's actually an opposite of another word. You know, and it, it, it's a... It's a, it's a word that is defined by what it's contrary to. And what it's contrary to is um, a word which means severe or sharp to judge. So it's the opposite of being severe and sharp to judge. It, it's as far away as you can get from that. And then we've got this word forbearance. Forbearance tells us something else about God's character and his nature. And it's this, that He's tolerant and he exercises restraint even when he's provoked. That, that's, his, that's his leading edge. That's what he's predisposed to. And then we get the word patient, meaning he patiently endures wrongs committed against him because he knows he can bring good out of the situation. So you've got those three things together. And... What I'm trying to get at here is that his nature is goodness, forbearance, and patience with us. That's who he is. He's a good God, and he's not deliberately setting out to show us how bad we are. He's setting out to help us enter into the same level of goodness that he has. Some of you are starting to worry now. Let me show you some things. Psalm 107, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness 
endures forever or is everlasting, depending on which, which you have. Let's have a look at Psalm 145. Verse 9, the Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. And then if you're going like, okay, well, all that's, that, the surprising thing is that is Old Testament. Isn't that surprising? Okay, that's Old Testament. James 1.17, verse a lot of you might know. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing comes from God. And God doesn't change. He's not, he's not going all over the place. He's not a good God one day, a bad God another day. He's not deciding he wants to bless people one day and he wants to throw curses on them the next day. That's not who he is. That's what that's saying. So the point I'm making is that he's predisposed to goodness. Now, that doesn't mean... He isn't just and won't deal with sin. You see, the problem is that, that, that we rank all the attributes of God equally. Theologians do this. They, they have this thing called the attributes of God. And you, when you're at Bible school, you have to learn them all. And so you get love, mercy, kindness, goodness, just, holy. And they rank all those equally. Because they're all equally true of God. But what God himself is saying here is he doesn't lead with them all. For instance, what we've done, if we're religious, is swap them around and say, well, the most important attribute of God is justice and wrath. That, that he's going to be just. And so you better book your ideas up. But what God is saying is, I choose to lead with the others of my tributes. It doesn't change the fact that I am going to be just because that would be unfair to all the people who've ever been martyred in my name if I'm not just. It would be unfair for all the suffering. It would be unfair for all those who've laid down their lives for me compared to all those who hated me. That would be unfair. But what God is saying, I am predisposed so that you see my goodness. That's what I want the world to know I am. I don't take pleasure in justice. I am uh, slow to anger, quick to bless. Psalm um, 145, 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and quick to bless. Slow to anger, quick to bless. So he's predisposed to blessing. He's quick to bless. And it takes a lot to get him angry. Are you getting this? Okay, some of you are looking like puzzled. Okay, let, let, me, let me help you a little bit with this. And uh, the trouble with going through a book, like we're going through Romans, is you can't preach it all on one day. Okay? But let me help you a, a little bit with this, because what comes up in a lot of people's heads at this point is like, is God schizophrenic? Because... We see him doing one thing in the Old Testament. We see him doing a completely different thing in the New Testament. So is he schizophrenic? Like, one point he's pouring down fire on, uh, well, Elijah's pouring down fire on people. And then when the disciples want to do it in the New Testament, Jesus tells them off. You know, like, did God have good days, bad days? 
No, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we've got to get ahead around that. No, the nature of this is God is exactly the same in the Old Testament and the New. However, he deals with us on a different basis. Because the covenant is different. Okay, you've got, to get, you've got to get this. I haven't got time to explain this this morning. Just take me on trust that I'm going to explain this over the coming weeks. God, from when Adam fell, dealt with mankind on the basis of grace for 2,000 years. He didn't wipe out Adam. He didn't wipe out Cain when he murdered his brother. In fact, he protected Cain. He dealt with Abraham. Abraham, he was a complete idiot most of the time and ended up being told by God he was his best friend. He dealt with people on the basis of grace. But at some point, <coughs> Moses' day, the Israelites, the Jews, had the idea that sin was okay. Because God didn't punish sin, they thought he was okay with sin. And when God confronted them with their, their, that at Mount Sinai by appearing in his holiness and his glory, and they all ran away... He said, come to me and I'll, and I'll help you. I'll show you what to do. And they said, no, God, it's okay. We can do it. We'll do it. And God said, okay, here's the law. You do it. And from that point to Jesus, it's a completely different covenant. Because the law has to be kept in all its facets. And what God was doing and we'll find this out in, in later sessions, is he was trying to constrain sin on earth until Jesus comes. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been a virgin on earth that Jesus could have been born to. That, that, that sin had this attitude that God was okay with sin had become so prevalent that he needed to do something about it because it wasn't time for Christ to come yet. And so we, we don't see a schizophrenic God. We see him dealing with man in two different ways, under an old covenant and a new covenant. It's the same God. Now, all the terms of that old covenant, all the punishment of that old covenant were taken by Christ. It <coughs> no, no, doesn't matter for us. So God now is drawing to us to him through his goodness. And what he's offering us is a solution to the problem of sin from that goodness as a free gift. He's offering us the power of God to change our lives, to become something we could never become ourselves, to become a new creation, to change our lives, to live fresh, to live new, to be new every morning, filled with the power and glory of God. Amen? You should be getting excited now. Because that means you, can't, you don't have to do anything to get this. He's not mad with you. He's not schizophrenic. It's a different covenant and it's gone. So what's he say? I got all excited then. <laughs> Do you think lightly of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Okay. I'm really encouraged by the fact you haven't left yet. All right? Because this is um, big shift number two. Okay. What is repentance? What, what do you imagine when I use the word repentance? 
one. Give me, give me what you see in your image. I don't mean because you know what the answer is and you can give me the three words. Give me what you see in your image. What would repentance look like in this place this morning? People crying, being sorry. Freedom. What does repentance look like? It's a bit more difficult with you guys because a lot of you are well-trained because you've done rock solid. <coughs> You're going like, so where's Mark going with this one? <coughs> okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take you into a different level of freedom than what you've experienced. Let me explain. A lot of us have an image of what repentance looks like. And when we see that in somebody, we go, ah, oh, they're repentant. And so our approach is to try and reproduce that in other people. And that is around, you know, what would real repentance? Oh, crying out to God, weeping, wailing, being remorseful, feeling guilty, feeling convicted, feeling sorry, and, and so on. Okay? Now, you're going to have to listen carefully, because I'll explain all this in, in a minute. But that's not what repentance is. Okay? Now, some of you all already have this word to turn around, because okay? you've heard that. Well, that's kind of a bit of repentance, but that's not what it is either. Okay? Now, you, now you, you're all bothered. Okay? Lean forward. Look at me, because I'm going to tell you what repentance is. Right? Repentance is a translation of the word metanoia. The word metanoia means to change your mind about something. Okay, repeat, repeat after me. Metanoia means to change my mind. I can change my mind. Okay, now. How do I know that's right? Well, I know that's right because in 2006, an ecumenical group of scholars, that's people from all denominations, did a study of, they were, they were um, funded to do this study uh, of the study of repentance in the Bible and the early church. And this is their conclusion. After a thorough examination of Hellenistic and Jewish writings, the study found that for Jews living at the time of Jesus, we meant, meant a fundamental change in the way they thought. See, we've made it something different in our picture than it ever was when Paul wrote this, these words. And therefore, we feed that into the way we read God's word. And therefore, being pastors and leaders of churches and people ministering to each other, it feeds into the way we minister into each other and what we're trying to produce in each other. There's a, the, the problem came because when, and I'm not knocking things, but this is just fact, when the Catholic Church translated the New Testament into Latin, they translated the word metanoia as penitentia. And penitentia metamorphosed into the words they used for penance and punishment. And that's how it got associated with this idea of the fear 
of God and, and sorrow and, and just guilt causing a change of the person. If guilt and sorrow could have caused a change in the person, Jesus wouldn't have had to come because that's what the law was designed to do. So under the new covenant, that's not necessarily where we're our starting point. Our starting point is we're trying to change minds so that people change their minds about how they're going to um, relate to God. And that puts a whole different perspective on things like repent for the kingdom is hand. It means, like, guys, change your mind because can't you see heaven is invading? Come on. Look at it from a different perspective. Think like God thinks instead of like you think. These are a couple of quotes. These are, these are quotes. That the, the, the chapter of the book that I'm going to send you out this week has a lot more quotes in it from um, all sorts of theologians. You know, people who've wrote books on systematic theology, people who have got like brains just like five times the size of mine. And so here's, here's one quote The problem is not preaching repentance, it is giving the wrong definition to the word. Down through the centuries, repentance has come to mean a far different thing than what was preached by John the Baptist, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, Jesus Christ himself. You'll find that the Greek word means to think differently afterwards. That means to change your mind. And then this, this second one, uh, this is really succinct. It is a linguistic and theological tragedy that we go on using repentance for metanoia. You can't get straighter than that, can you? We've got it wrong, and it creates wrong patterns. What we're trying to do is change our mind about the way we relate to God. And the way God changes our mind is through the Holy Spirit in the Word. We've got to understand that God set this up so, so we can live it. Now, if you're, the, if you're the one, one of the few people who goes, oh, what about 2 Corinthians 7.10? Okay, well, what about 2 Corinthians 7.10? 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, because this is what... If I put this on Facebook, this is what will get quoted back to me. But the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So, according to that, there is a sorrow that produces repentance without regret. That is true. Okay, so this is really fine thing that I'm going to say here, and you've got to understand it in order to get free. Of all people, all that feeling that you are never good enough, to, you're a rubbish Christian. Sorrow is a valid expression of changing your mind. But it is not the only expression of changing your mind. Okay? You've got to understand that. Sorrow isn't the same as repentance. Repentance, you change your mind. Sorrow can be an expression of that changed mind. You might see what a mess you've been making and be remorseful and sorry for it. You might see who God really is and be jumping up and down in the aisles and somebody telling you you're not a Christian because you haven't had that point of repentance. Yes, you have. You've changed your mind about the way you saw God. The valid expressions of God. Now, I say that because if you just read that verse in isolation, you can um, 
you can, you can see that. But actually, you can't take that verse in isolation. What Paul is talking about is not in that verse. He's in actually the repentance of the Corinthians towards God. He's talking to them about how they changed their minds about him. Actually, Paul, that they were against him because he'd written them a letter saying what a mess they were making of the salvation they'd been given. And it had caused them to be sorrowful that they'd been starting to reject Paul. And then they re-embraced him. And he's saying, I'm glad that, that, that what I wrote produced that sorrow in you. And you've now changed your mind about me. You see how we can just quote stuff? without getting the whole grasp of how the new covenant works. Okay, let's, let's finish off just with a few points. Let's go back to Romans chapter 2. Because what I want you to see here is, because we can never be perfect, we need to be given salvation external of ourselves. Because we can't do it. We can't hit the line. So we need to have salvation external of ourselves. And we have a problem, which I, I'm, I'm going to come on to, well, Paul's going to come on to, but he's going to start to identify the problem now. And the reason we can never get there isn't that we can't keep the rules, because we can't, but the, there's a, the, the, not being able to keep the rules is the sign of a deeper problem that there's something wrong inside us. Our hearts are wrong. And without a change in our hearts, there's nothing we can do about it. Because our desires need to change. We, we have to move away from wanting to get away with whatever we can until we go across the line, to wanting to live because we love God. And because we can live free. And Paul starts to say, look, the issue, guys, and the issue that God's trying to address by showing you how good he is, is he wants you to draw you to him so that he can change your hearts. Now look at this, Romans 2, verse 7. Those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, to them eternal life. Sorry. Where have I got to? Sorry, that, that's actually t verse 5. I'm giving you the wrong reference there. Verse 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. So what's the problem that causes us to sin? So an unsaved person, what's the problem that is causing them to sin and that God is going to judge? It's not the sin. It's the unrepentant and stubborn heart that causes the sin. Something needs to change about the heart in order to stop the sin. So verse 7. What's the next one? Now, as I got that reference, right? eight. Right. Those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honour and immortality, eternal life. But those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. What Paul is saying here is that the stuff deep inside us, selfish ambition uh, that, that causes us to do wrong things. But there's also um, other people who are perseverant and do good. And that comes from their heart too. 
And, and what, what, what needs to happen is our hearts need to change so that we do good, that we want to do good and we're able to do good. Let's move on to verse 14 and 15 because you can see this a little bit more clearly. The Gentiles, so these are people who don't even have the law. The Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law. These not having the, le- the law have a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. He's going back and saying, look, you can see a sign of this in the way that people react. Because they know there's God, because they have this intuitive sense of God inside, because they have this intuitive sense of right and wrong, their hearts cause them to act in a certain way. You can already see that even in an unrenewed man, there's something in him that's causing to act in a certain way. So we're not all bad. There's good and bad mixed in. And it's all coming out of the heart. So... so what, what you see, the good stuff, comes out of the heart. What you see, the bad stuff, comes out of the heart. And God intends to change your heart. That's the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. Not that God declared you completely scot-free, which is true, but also he gives you the ability to live it by changing your heart. He doesn't give you the ability to live the law. He gives the ability to love him and be sold out for him and nothing else matters but him. You know, people go, like they, somewhere they, they check the brains out, they check out and go, so God gives you a new, you're a new creation, you've got the Holy Spirit, so you can live the law. No, 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 you can never live the law. The whole point of the law is to prove to you you can't do it. We don't live the law. The Holy Spirit is given us so we can live for God. And let his love flow through us. And, and it's so tragic that we get people who get saved by grace and then told they have to live the law. You can never live the law. The problem's not the behavior. The problem's the lack of change of heart. God isn't after religious people. He's not after people who can keep rules. He's not after people who can do anything at all by their own effort. He's not after super talented people, super holy people, super prayerful people. He's after you. Whatever you like. And here's the point. To even let God change us, we have to know who he is. You see, if we know God is good, and we see him for his goodness, his kindness, his patience, his care for us, then we'll let him change us. If we think... He's displeased with us all the time. If we think he's just waiting to punish us, we'll try and change us so we can please him. And we won't let him do it. Can you see? Because it's really subtle. You have to see God as good to let him release his goodness and to let him 
change your heart. If you see him as out to get you, you will always be trying to change your heart and you cannot do it. Because you'll always want to go to him in a way that you think he's going to be pleased with you. Instead of knowing that he loves you and he wants to, he's coming to you. Finish with this verse. Verse 29. But he is a Jew, that means one of God's people, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, that's the law, and his praise is not from men, but from God. You can't do it, only God can. Now, just get that. The one who is God's people is the one inwardly who is God's person, who is, is part of God's family. Not by external things. And the circumcision, that's the sign that, the, 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 the sign that you're separated to God, isn't by some external thing demanded by rules. It's by the Spirit. The circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit. And that is what is going to transform you. That is why the gospel is the power of God for men unto salvation. And it's a free gift. And the just shall live by faith. Because circumcision can only take place, you can only sort your heart by the Spirit. Not by the letter of the law. And that's where the power is. So we have to stop pointing people to themselves and their own issues and their own shortcomings and start pointing them to God where the answer is. And let the Holy Spirit do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 